Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Judith Thiessen. Judith is Associate Professor of Film History at Utrecht University. Her research interests reach across fields, including cinema history, social history, urban studies, and Jewish studies. She's a specialist of Jewish immigrant entertainment in New York City, especially film culture on the Lower East Side in the early 20th century. When the movies made their inroad into American life, as she says, more recently she began to research the 1920s. Her current project investigates the marketing and reception of The Jazz Singer, a Warner Brothers film from 1927, and it looks at it in the context of changing media practices among second-generation Jews. Judith is also a frequent contributor to the Digital Yiddish Theater Project website. So welcome, Judith. So glad that you could join me today. And thanks so much for the invitation. Oh. Well, after reading your recent article, which appeared on the Digital Yiddish Theater Project website, which was about the curtain falling on the Sunshine Theater, I was so eager to talk to you, both about that story and sort of the more general history of theater and what this loss means um, as, you know, as it is uh, a loss to the Lower East Side landscape. Um, I wonder, can you tell me, let's start off by sharing a bit about Sunshine Theater's long history as part of, it was on East Houston Street, as I understand it, um, which was a Lower East Side neighborhood in New York. Um, and it uh, really helped to establish the Yiddish Theater District on 2nd Avenue. Yes, it did. It's, it's kind of, I mean, in a way, its history is more movie theater history, film history than Yiddish theater history. But in, a, in another, if you look at it from a broader perspective, it was kind of crucial. The Sunshine Theater was in first. I mean, it's the building which is there today is built in 1917. But before that, there was an old Dutch church, and I'm from the Netherlands. <laughs> and it's kind of strange because I discovered it, it was an early 19th century Dutch Reformed church, which in 1908 was kind of abandoned, and then in 1910 became a Yiddish musical. And so for a long time, uh, for like four or five years, it was really a place where people would go to the movies and to Yiddish vaudeville, and, but it was an old building. And then in 1917, I thought first that they renovated it, but I think they really teared it down, and they built a new one. And that, you know, but on that spot by then, you know, it was the center of the Yiddish um, theater district, which was earlier on the Bowery, and then moved to Second Avenue. But the guys who really invested to turn the old church into a Yiddish vaudeville uh, house, a Yiddish musical, were people who, after that, two years later, built a national theater. And that was just, I think, one, two, well, two blocks away. So it's really kind of this this move from the Bowery to the real, where there were, you know, old movie, uh, uh, theaters which were turned into Yiddish theaters, then you get the really theaters which are built for Yiddish theater. And that's really happening in this period. And the people who are behind it, uh, Louis Minsky, a uh, really powerful uh, Jewish uh, immigrant with a lot of money, he invested in building up the Yiddish theater district. And it's, you know, at this kind of crossroad um, of moving into uh, more luxury buildings, et cetera, that the Sunshine Theater 
played an important role. You mentioned the backers, and I can't help but know what you wrote in your article, which is wonderful. If I may just borrow from that and then ask you to expand on it. You note that um, the backers included a kosher chicken czar and yeah. Tammany, Dist- yeah. <laughs> Tammany District leader Martin Engel, who owned yeah. several brothels and concert saloons yeah. in downtown Manhattan. So ob- obviously these were movers and shakers of some degree, um, but they saw that this neighborhood was a place where their investment would be wisely placed, yes? Yes, it is. And also there has always been a kind of thin line between certainly you know, the low side of uh, vaudeville and uh, prostitution. I mean, when the first Yiddish musicals opened in 1902, the Yiddish press was very much against them. And they said that was, you know, a, a danger for, for the immigrants, especially for women, and also that, you know, not very well-reputed women would, you know, go there. And so there was always, kind, you know, there was a mix of, well... Uh, we were not sure, but it was kind of spicy entertainment, and then there was the wine with it, <laughs> and and it certainly was not, you know, a place where every respectable woman wanted to be seen. There's actually a, a very nice uh, kind of article in the Jewish uh, Daily Forward in the Forward, I think it's 1905, uh, which says, should a, a, a Jewish woman visit a Yiddish musical? You know, it's this question already. So it's not that amazing that someone with a background like uh, Martin Engel invests in this kind of in this kind of place, you know. And again, you mentioned earlier that this was a former church, which yeah. then morphed um, many years later to accommodate its new function and audience. And I, again, if I may read from from your article, because it's just so sort of delicious, <laughs> the way you describe this, um, you say over the next few years, the racks that once held hymnals would be frequently used for storing the bagels, salamis, knishes, and other snacks that audiences brought with them to eat during the show. So tell me, was this a unique situation where this morphed from a church into uh, theater or cinema, or was this true of many of the other uh, places, venues in the Lower East Side? Uh, It's kind of unique that it was a church. Um, first of all, there are not that many churches in that part of the uh, neighborhood. Um, but they would take basically any building. So a lot of our storefronts, theaters, just, you know, you have an empty store, you convert it. But with the storefronts, because you have a basic lot size in uh, New York City, that's kind of small. So you couldn't put too many people inside. Maximum, I counted it one day, 300, and that was also what was the maximum from uh, municipal uh, legislation. But, you know, you would like to have a bigger um, bigger place. So the guy who opened um, the house in Hyperdrome, as the Sunshine was first called, did it, uh, was Charles Steiner, and he did it with uh, Abe Minsky. Uh, but Charles Steiner had already tried to find another big place, and he opened the first, his second movie place in the kosher, former kosher sausage factory. So they were just looking for kind of really bigger than normal spaces. Um, but I've, I've never come across another case where a church was turned uh, in the theater. So I think that, that in that sense, it was uh, quite exceptional. And, and in their heyday, um, 
maybe you could talk a little bit about the audience and also these places were open like in this particular theater also <laughs> was open what at 11 in the morning until yeah, midnight it just would go in an effort whenever there was a you know room to go in you know so on sunday it might be crowded because that was the only day most people uh, were off um but it would open at night at, at well earliest the earliest sometimes even open at nine o'clock but the the house of hyperome opened at, at 11 and would stay at open for 12 hours and people would during the day it's mostly women we think uh, and although in periods and when um, you know work was there was shortage of work um, so people would be unemployed people would spend the whole afternoon there because it was kind of cozy and even if they would see the show for uh, three four times it was still warm inside and pleasant they were not thrown out. They could sit as long as possible, except on the weekend, because there you needed to turn over. So we know that the program was um, it, short movies. You know, at the time it was silent movies, but it would always be music with it. But they would run like 10-minute movies, 15-minute movies. Sometimes later in the 19-teens, they get a little longer. And then with Yiddish vaudeville acts, but also with English vaudeville. So it's kind of mixed. You have a mixed program. And later they start, because competition got very fierce from 1911, 1912 on. They would, you know, start longer plays, three-act plays. So it would be almost like going to the Yiddish theater, but only for five cents or ten cents. So really interesting uh, to go there. It's really sharp price. Um, and and apparently people loved it. You know, they just loved to go there, and it, it did very well. Until, of course, you know, competition copied it. So then, of course, they had to invent something else. And every time they were offering kind of more and more in- entertainment for the same price. So at one, one point, that you know, kind of the limit was reached, and they needed to have a bigger theater. So they moved. So they moved to the upper floor to the National Theater, but. For three, four years, it was really one of the, you know, I think, hotspots of the Lower East Side to go there. You mentioned competition. So there was enough of an audience to keep many of these venues operating. I cannot imagine. There were 35 what we call Nickelodeon's Nickel Theaters in the Lower East Side alone. Wow. That was at every corner. Uh, and this is not even, I mean, he's kind of interesting that it opened on East House, Houston Street because there was nothing at that period there, but a bit below East Houston, that was really the, you know, the center of where all the small movie theaters were. Um, and most of them offered some kind of Yiddish portable in between. Um, and on the corner of Essex and Riverton Street, there were four nickel theaters competing with each other, and each had a maximum capacity of 300 uh, seats. So, but it's you know 1,200 seats available for one corner. You know, it's it's amazing. It's, it, they were everywhere. And you know, on almost you know every street you would find one or two. And for various immigrant um, populations, basically only Jewish immigrants uh, in the core center. Now, uh, when on the East House Street, we know it because in 1913 there was a full fire panic in the house of hyperdrome and um and so there was a rush outside and and, and uh, the, the, there i think three people died and quite a lot of victims um just because of the panic there was no fire 
And uh, we know there were also uh, Italian immigrants in the, in the audience uh, because of this victim list. And that was kind of unique, because, but it's because there's a, a niche of Italians living in the neighborhood of East House. So people just went to the movies around the corner. They're just living like 200, 300 meters. I don't know what that is. It's a matter of blocks. Walk. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, one, two blocks. Then you would go, and you, ha- you would even have a choice. So uh, we know uh, that uh, actually uh, Jewish immigrants went to the movies, you know, I think most, I mean, they were really fervent, very, they loved the movies. They loved the Yiddish theater. They loved to go out. And, uh, I mean, also with the Yiddish theaters, I mean, it's amazing. You know, you have three, four big Yiddish theaters supported by the Jewish immigrant community. So these people just love to go out. And we have to realize that they're, how they lived in the tenements. You know, they were very small apartments, mm-hmm. you know. So there was also reason to go out. But they did go out more than any ethnic community. And it was the primary source of entertainment in a native language. Yes, also, yes. But they also loved the movies, which were, at the time, actually not American movies most of the time, but European movies. You, you use a, um, a word that I'd not heard of before, vaudepick theater. Does that yeah. mean, was there live entertainment as well? Yeah, so it's vaudeville, so it's, it's live entertainment and pictures. So they, they use the time, it's really a term of the period. So it's the whole idea that you have variety acts, affordable acts combined with, uh, with movies, short movies. That would be normally a program which lasts like an hour, an hour and a half. And you also because it's all short numbers, you know, on the bill, you could enter whatever time. It didn't matter, you know. There was not really a fixed uh, order where you, for which to see the program. It's just, just like, okay, step in and, and enjoy it. I know I'm speaking with you on the phone, and you're in Holland at the moment, um, but I suspect that you at some point have been to visit the, any of the remaining theaters? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I always go to Lower East Side. I started my, long before, actually, I, I did my PhD on this. So I my first trip to New York City was in, I think, the early 90s. And I went to the Lower East Side. I always had been interested in Jewish culture, and I just wanted to see what was left. And I remember going back to the Upper East Side, where I stayed with a friend, and she said, oh, you went down to the Lower East Side. You know, that's scary. You shouldn't go there alone. And I, I didn't, you know, there was still a lot going on. And, and it, you know, it was long before gentrification started, of course. But there was still more at that time, of course, than today. And over the past, well, almost 20, 30 years, I've been returning, and every time something is lost, I have to say. I mean, I've seen movie theaters almost destroyed before my eyes, and because, actually, the big, because they're bigger lots, because the size of the, the it's, it's an interesting place to build something, a new hotel or a new apartment building, because they're bigger than the standard uh, tenement size, and usually double the size. So these are the, the last remnants, you know, the, the, the heritage is kind of disappearing very fast because, you know, these are interesting uh, uh, buildings to destroy and to build something new. I mean, a lot of them, I think, were on corners, which gave them, or now provides even 
more benefit to somebody who's doing development. But most of them were never given landmark protection, correct? No, they, no, they were not. No. And I mean, that's for good reason. I mean, <laughs> most of the time they're not very interesting architecturally. And of course, they, you know, they have been abandoned most of the time for, 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 for what, decades. So they would have been used as warehouses. Some of them were turned into dollar stores. And you could go in, there, there's still, I think, one or two on Clinton Street. You go in the dollar store, you see the slope floor. Most people customers won't uh, recognize it, but you can go see upstairs, you see the projector booth. Um, the Yiddish theaters were the ones who were very early already destroyed because, of course, they were even bigger. So they, they made room for housing projects or parking places. Um, but no, I, I don't think any of them got landmark status. Um, not really on the Lower East Side, uh, in the Jewish part proper. Wow. And they tried to for this theater, but they couldn't. Uh, in, inside, can you describe what any of them looked like uh, before they became the dollar store? That's an amazing story. <laughs> well, they looked very simple. I mean, this was, you know, it's kind of, a, it's not fancy. It was modern. Once they did, the, the ones that really were built like the Sunshine Theater, um, they were just, they were plain buildings, not too much fancy stuff about it, because they were cheap. So their their admission price remains very low compared to, uh, you know, the, the more fancy movie theaters, the picture palaces that were built, uh, like uh, the Lalancy Street Theater, that was much more fancy. That's still around, uh, but I, I don't think it has land, um, maybe it has landmark status, I don't know, but nothing is happening there. There's the shops on the, stores on the uh, ground floor. But there were, it would be very simple. It would be like uh, going into a retail store, but in this time, you know, you would just go into a mo- to get a get a movie and and a, and a bit of vaudeville entertainment. And we have, I mean, I have to say this also: we have no pictures of anything. We we have small descriptions, mostly in building um, uh, applications, but we have. A very little idea how it looked like, but I mean, I think they were simple most of the time. It's such a shame. I mean, maybe you can speak a little bit about what the loss of this building uh, represents in terms of, you know, loss of understanding of what the neighborhood and the culture was like. Well, I think, I mean, I think buildings should have been protected. I, I mean, it, it did not get landmark status because, uh, and this is a bit complicated. I mean, there was the. It has been changed, uh, renovated into a five-screen uh, movie theater by the Landmark uh, Company, uh, which is a big movie theater company for art house movies in the United States. Uh, but it, it was not a landmark in the sense that it was protected as a landmark. And the reason it was not protected was that they changed it. But, I mean, the great thing about this is what they did is was turning a one-screen movie theater from 1917 until a small multiplex, uh, what you need to uh, have today if you want to run a, 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 a movie company um, uh, with a profit. And, um, and they did that very well, and they really nicely restored uh, the outside. And I think the outside is really, it's in this sense, it's quite a, a, an amazing one. It's very simple. It's brick architecture, but it, it is, has a kind of clear modernist, uh, look about it, and that could have been easily, I think, kept, uh, even if you would have whatever a fancy 
retail fashion store inside. Um, and that would, I think, be nice uh, because um, if we only build very modern office buildings or, or even apartment buildings over there, something is lost, I think, of this mix of tenement buildings and entertainment buildings, you know, the, the, the whole kind of yeah, unique thing that, you know, everything was in the neighborhood. You went out from your apartment, you go to, you would go to the market, to the stores, you could go to the movies, to the theater, um, and, um, well, it's there, been there around for, um, well, a bit more than 100 years, and I think for the American history, that's quite a bit. <laughs> so let's protect what is left, and, and a few of these places, of course there are so few, well, Judith, thank you so much for taking time to join me today, and many thanks for your work chronicling these rich, important stories and architectural gems, modest maybe, but still such a part of the history of the Lower East Side. And uh, we look forward to your next work. And if our listeners want to read the article and learn more, they can visit YiddishStage.org which is the Digital Yiddish Theater Project website, yes? Yes, that's it. There's more to read. Uh, if they want to Google around, they will find more <laughs> about the theater. Great. Thank you again, Judith, and we hope we see you uh, here at the Yiddish Book Center sometime in the future. I hope to. Thank you very much. Great. We show a lot of Yiddish movies, so you'll be happy. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> that would be great because I hardly ever see them except on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. This is Jessica Parker, Museum Education Specialist at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. And while you're there, I recommend listening to episode 142 from April 4th, 2017, Lisa Newman's conversation with Sandy Fox, host of the feminist Yiddish podcast, Weibirteich. Until next time, be well, be healthy, sei gesund.